Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. If today is your very first episode, I just wanted to say welcome. I am super, super excited to have you here. And if you're returning, welcome back. Thank you so much for being a regular listener. And regardless if you are a new listener or a returning listener, today you and I get to hang out with Joanna Penn. Joanna writes nonfiction for authors and is an award-nominated New York Times and USA best-selling thriller author as J.F. Penn. She's written over 30 books and has sold over 600,000 books in 149 countries and six languages. She's also an international professional speaker and award-winning creative entrepreneur. In 2018, she was awarded Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital Book World. Her show, The Creative Pen Podcast, has been downloaded over 4 million times in two 220 countries. In this episode, we dive into a ton, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, Joanna's top suggestions that you can use to grow your brand that she's learned the hard way after selling over 600,000 copies of her books and publishing over 500 episodes on her podcast about writing. Number two, how AI and blockchain are going to impact content creators and what you and I should be paying attention to right now so that we can take advantage of this technology. And number three, how travel has changed Joanna's life and how she leverages her travel experiences to help her with her creative process. We also discussed minimalism, journaling practices, and reinvention, and this was a really fun conversation that I can't wait for you to listen to. But before we get to it, one last thing, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out to Meg Erforth, who left a review saying, an exciting journey. I'm excited to embark on this journey with Brandon and share in his liberating mission to bring a new definition of success to us all. Brandon's methods and personality are incredibly empowering and urge you to take your life into your own hands and become the person you want to be each and every day. Quality, engaging content for those young and experienced. So Meg, thank you so much for leaving that review. That was really nice of you. It made my day. And if you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review, please do so. Not only does it make my day, but it also helps other people to discover the show. And I might give you a pre-show listener shout out in a future episode. So with that said, please enjoy this incredible and wide-ranging conversation with my friend, Joanna Penn. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today, we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. Well, Joanna, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me on, Brandon. I'm excited too. This is going to be a blast. And I thought we would start with some of your passions, actually. And so I would love to start by you telling us the story of a choice that your mom gave you and your little brother in 1986 when you were 11 years old. (laughs) I think this is a great place to set the scene and kind of tell us a little bit about what you're passionate about and how it translates into what you've done. So would you mind telling us that story? Sure. And wow, you've really dug into my history here. But um, <laughs> yes, so basically, I was, you know, brought up by a single mom and, uh, you know, did 
didn't have much money. I, I know your family kind of, you know, you didn't come from a lot of money either. And um, yes, yeah, so basically we were in the kitchen, you know, back in the day. So I was 11 and my brother was eight and our kitchen was awful. I mean, it really was a terrible kitchen. And my mum was like, well, we could have a new kitchen. Like we could spend some money and make the kitchen nice or we could go back to Africa. So basically my mum, uh, we had gone to school in Malawi, um, Central Africa, sort of Central East Africa. And uh, we had lived there for a year or so. And then we hadn't been back. And so this was do you want to spend another winter in England or do you want to go back to Malawi and swim in the lake and everything? And me and my brother like didn't even have to think about it. And, you know, we were like, oh, we're totally going back to Africa. And as you said, I think that has shaped me and I know how much you value life over money. I mean, yes, we're ambitious. We want to make money, but it's experience that is more important. And um, one of my podcast books and travel is about the sort of travel behind things. So I tend to spend money on travel when we can. Obviously, we're still recording this in the pandemic, but um, travel is sort of fundamental and also experience over physical possessions, I think. So yeah, that lesson was a very early one. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. That's why I wanted to start with this as I know you 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 have when I was researching you, I mean you have literally have over 500 podcast episodes and as you started the second podcast I'm like where do I even start? And I thought that this is a great place to start because you seem to be in kind of a phase of reinvention at least right now where you're starting to create new stuff and I just think that this new direction you're heading is really excited. So, I'm excited to dive into both all the stuff you've done over the past 10 years in self-publishing and talk a little bit about where you're going. But I did want to hone in a little bit on one specific thing that you just said right there about prioritizing your experiences over possessions. And I, I I haven't talked about minimalism yet on the show, but I just thought it would be interesting to maybe talk about your perspective as somebody that values experiences and travel and somebody that has a successful business, but just kind of chooses to prioritize the important stuff. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about how minimalism has played a part in your life? Mm. Well, I'm not a true minimalist, uh, but I am very careful about what we spend money on. So we, me and my husband, you know, if there's any book you want, you buy the book. So basically, unlimited book budget. <laughs> yeah, unlimited. And of course, I have a business around books. So it's kind of tax deductible anyway. But, oh, sure. <laughs> um, but books are, you know, the sort of every I buy books almost every single day, you know, audiobooks, print books, ebooks, I'm just books are my thing. And so we, we, we spend money on that. And then we spend money on travel, but we live in a, you know, modest house. Uh, we don't have a car. We haven't had a car for years. Um, we we would like to go out more, <laughs> again, when the pandemic's over. Right. But I think, to me, minimalism is more about decluttering the things that don't matter and allowing to spend on the things that do matter. And uh, I don't know, you must be aware of the FIRE movement, the financial independence yes retire early. Yeah. So I'm also a fire person, uh, although (laughs) retirement is, you know, not what I'm aiming for, but financial independence, you know, so I, I'm, I kind of have the same thing, which is I put a substantial amount of money away for, for the future, but I don't let that impinge on the things I want to spend. So that would, I I think that's a sort of hopefully a, a healthy way to look at, um, minimalism. Um, 
for example, I know again you you prioritize health, and I I have a personal trainer twice a week on Zoom now, and so I prioritize spending on my health. Um, mm. Whereas, like I said, we don't have a car, and you know, there's lots of things we don't care about. <laughs> Like mo- most of the other things we don't care about. So that would be, I think, my attitude. And, and that's definitely what my family kind of upbringing in as, as well. We don't want the big house, the big car. I know in America it's a bit different because you have a different culture. Uh, you probably need a car, but you don't over here in England. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And and uh, for those of the list that are listening that haven't explored fire, fire is an incredible thing to study. And uh, one of my favorite uh, thought leaders in this space is, I guess you wouldn't really classify him as fire, but uh, I will teach you to be rich. Ramit Sethi has got some phenomenal yeah. content on on like what you said is about it's it's important to understand what is important to you and spend mm-hmm. spend as optimize your spending so you can spend as much as you want as what brings you happiness but the stuff that is the keeping up with the joneses the stuff that like society tells you you're supposed to spend on like having that awareness to cut back on that stuff and just really crank up the spending on what really makes you happy i think that's a really important thought exercise to do so thank you so much for sharing that oh yeah and i heard ramit talk about that when he did the reboot of i will teach you to be rich whatever the second version of was called but um yeah and that's uh, they, they, some people call it fat fire yeah <laughs> rather fire, than lean fire <laughs> yeah exactly i'm definitely on the fat fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so just to clarify for people listening so lean fire is when you like don't spend anything you coupon mm-hmm. your way and you save everything you just put everything away uh whereas fat fire is a little bit more lenient and you can kind of just spend more uh and, and and still take a little bit of a longer time for independence but not have to kind of eat on ramen and that kind of stuff because some people are kind of extreme. <laughs> yeah. And I think the important thing is to me, I already have the lifestyle and the work that I love. So when I was your age, sorry about, you know, the age thing, but you know, <laughs> when I was in my early thirties, I had a job I hated and I was miserable working in the corporate space, you know, in the cubicle and the IT projects and the, you know, very highly paid, but uh, it was just, it was just miserable. And so at that point um, I gave up my job and downsized and we sold everything and I started writing and so for me I now am in my independent lifestyle as such so financial independence for me is not about leaving this job and doing something else it's about doing what I love for the rest of my life and you know if book sales go down uh, in some years and up in others which they do then it's more protecting that so I think that's the that's the big aspect I think about lifestyle design like you know Tim Ferriss talks about this and and many of the I know you like Tony Robbins and all that we read the same people which is uh, (laughs) nice but you know this kind of idea that you you want to spend your life doing something you love and yes money I think and you do that money is important for doing a lot of the things that you love but it shouldn't be at the expense of being miserable and you know I was earning really big money in IT but I hated it so what was the point (laughs) I love that that's actually a perfect transition because I did want to talk about reinvention specifically with you and you tell another story on your books and travel podcast. You know, I'm 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 sounding like I'm researching this, but I've, I listened to the the very first episode, and I thought it was an incredible way to start out. Is you mentioned three specific trips that completely changed your life, and the third one that you mentioned is blue water sailing on the tall ship Soren Larsen from Fiji to Vanuatu. Vanuatu, I even, yeah. I, Vanuatu. I don't know how to say that. Um, so would you, would you mind kind of tell? Because I, I wanted to dive into this 
topic of reinvention. And this is what you mm -hmm. shared is kind of like one of the first times you had to reinvent, you know, what was going on in your life. And you mentioned a little bit about the corporate stuff, but can you maybe set the scene telling us a little bit more about what specifically was going on in your life and at that time, and then what made you decide to just kind of up and leave and go on this trip and what the result of that was? Yeah, sure. So uh, back in the 90s, there was this this thing called the millennium bug, which uh, people believed that on the turn of the millennium, uh, I say believed, it was an IT thing that the numbers would click over and suddenly you needed the four digits, not the two digits, because everyone had just been building these systems. So I, I was in the 90s, I was doing a lot of these millennium projects. And so you were working really, really hard for a deadline. There was obviously a really hard deadline, the turn of the millennium. So uh, I was working working really hard. I was also in my, you know, I was like 25, 24, 25, party central. So having a really good time, having a good life, being paid well, traveling and basically burnt out on that lifestyle. And so I, I, yeah, I went to the South Pacific. So I'm, I'm in the UK. I went to the South Pacific, um, got on a, sa a sail ship and, and it's, so there's this seven days blue water, which is out of sight of land. So yeah, you spend the first 24 hours throwing up. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I was part of the one particular thing that I remember very well was being on watch. So everyone has to take a watch, which is a certain number of hours, uh, 24 hours a day, you're looking out at the ocean, watching for things. And it gives you a lot of time to think because basically it's just the ocean and, you know, that's it and birds and stuff. And so while I was doing that, I was, I thought a lot about, well, you know, what am I doing? And I'm living in London. I'm living the so-called dream. You know, uh, I'm making money. I've got a nice car at the time, and I'm traveling to Europe at first class, and I'm just doing all the things. And yeah, I'm really miserable. I'm so miserable. I'm kind of crying here in the South Pacific. And so I made the decision at that point to um, go back and and then resigned. So I actually um, resigned uh, and left in the year 2000. So the year after I, I resigned my job on my birthday, my 25th birthday. Good birthday <laughs> <and> present. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And headed off um, to Australia. I actually flew down to Perth and then traveled around Australia and all of this. So that kind of, what that, what it did was it just gave me a chance to really think about, or to, to stop and I think the pandemic time has done this for a lot of people too. You know, we tend to fill our life with so many things, just fill it and fill it and fill it and fill it. And this time kind of enforced sitting there looking at the ocean gave me more time to think about, well, who am I? You know, I just fell into, you know, I fell into a job. I just took a job to pay off my debts, like many people out of university this is not what I do. I have a degree in theology and yet I was implementing IT systems and all of this. So yeah, I went um, down to Australia. Now you could say, well, then everything changed and everything was perfect, but, but no, <laughs> what ended up happening was of course I did some traveling and everything, but then I ran out of money. So I went back to the day job, back to IT because it was, and then I spent pretty much another um, almost 10 years actually Get, no, 2000, 2011, I, I left my job finally. So yeah, it was another decade before I finally left uh, that world to become a creative entrepreneur. But it was that moment that really started me on that. And I just kept resigning and then getting another contract, resigning, getting a contract. I started a scuba diving business. I started property investing. I started all these different things, but I kept going back because look, let's face it, 
IT pays really good bills. <laughs> so, so, but so I think the lesson from that for people is so look, sometimes you have to do the thing that pays the bills while you figure out what you actually want to do with your life. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Like, I don't think you have to leave your job to become a writer, for example. Many writers are much happier having a day job that they kind of, they just do, um, you know, that kind of thing. So you, you have to do you have to think about what do you really want? And then also, what are you willing to pay to achieve that? Uh, I think that's another Tony Robbins thing. And, and, you know, what you have to pay is might be a lifestyle thing. It might be, um, uh, you know, for example, I took a massive pay cut, you know, for about five years after I left IT, uh, my salary just plummeted. And like I said, we sold our house, we sold everything, sold our investments at that point to start again. Um, so yeah, I guess you could say I'm, I think we all reinvent ourselves uh, every, at least every decade. Um, because, you know, what, what else are you doing if you're not growing, you're dying, basically. Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me of just yesterday, I did a workshop with this group. And one of the exercises I walked everybody through, it, it, it had to do with reflecting on your childhood and what you loved doing as a kid. And then looking at the gap between what you're doing right now and what you enjoyed as a child. So in other words, like I find that entrepreneurs that have the most velocity then grow the quickest, they're in alignment with who they always were, you know, like, and you, you, you love travel, you love books when you were really little and, and you just felt like, I mean, I'm not putting, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you felt like you were in alignment with what you always naturally wanted to do. And so you were mm -hmm. kind of feeling this kind of friction. And so you had to kind of revisit and figure out how can I get back into alignment with who I naturally am and what I want to do. And that's really when it inspired you to make the jump. Cause some people, like you said, spend their whole lives chasing the money when they're not in alignment with what they've always wanted to do. And that's, um, you know, one, one way to kind of leave a life that's going to make you really miserable on the inside. <laughs> yeah. Although what I would say, this is a really interesting point. Okay. Cause, uh, obviously again, the difference in our ages, I grew up without the internet. I started work. I only got my first email address when I started work. Um, I hand wrote all my essays at college and what's interesting Yes, the alignment has to be there, but the technology also has to be there. Mm. And the only reason that I make a multi-six figure living as a writer is because of Amazon, the Kindle, the internet. Um, you know, you and I obviously talking over Zoom, which didn't exist in 2006 when I started writing. The, the international Kindle, um, you know, the Kindle launched in 2007. So did the iPhone you know, I don't know if you've got, you can even imagine what the world was like for writers before that time, but it was impossible. It was basically impossible to have the career I have now. So when I left my job originally in the year 2000, I could not have had this career. And I think this is so important. So I see this at the moment, you know, um, the NFTs and the, the blockchain, the non-fungible tokens, the digital scarcity. This is a radical thing. The blockchain stuff, I'm looking at all of this right now because it's so exciting. And yet this, this is a new technology that I see is going to bring in revenue streams within the next decade and the AI powered stuff, the AI powered creative, which I love. And it's like, Again, this wasn't available even a few years ago, or even things like marketing with Facebook advertising and Amazon advertising things. So yes, I agree that there needs to be some alignment, but we have to also see that there is a time and a place and a technology that can help us 
grow whatever business it is. So I actually, one of the original businesses I tried to start in the year 2001-ish was travel itinerary. So it was a travel thing based in New Zealand. And the internet just wasn't what it was. You know, it was very early days. It was very hard to code things. And I'm not a coder. Um, so I gave that up. So that would be another tip for people is really consider what might help you. And so those people who think, oh, well, I could, you know, to make a living as a writer, you have to have a publisher. Well, that's just not true anymore. Um, and I make much better money than many uh, authors with publishers. So that's due to technology and my embracing technology. So yeah, I, do you see what I mean? There has to be an alignment of the tools as well as your will. Like the will to make it happen is not enough if the tools aren't available. Yeah. So I have it highlighted in my notes. This was a topic I wanted to make sure we covered. And so I'm going to read a little bit from a recent post you did on your site uh, about your goals for 2021, if that's okay, because I think this is like a perfect transition to, into this. And you said, I want 2021 to be a year of expansion creatively in terms of what I write, mentally in terms of the things I think about, and physically in terms of my health and where I travel once we're out of the woods with the virus, of course. In September 2021, I will hit my 10-year anniversary of going full-time as an author entrepreneur. And if you're not growing, you're dying, as the old adage goes. And I'm not uh, content to just write the next book, publish, market, and repeat. The internet and digital business just transformed opportunities for authors and publishing from 20 2010 to 2020 and further transformation is on the horizon. And so that, that, that is, I, I loved reading that because you are what you started publishing self-publishing books in 2008 when books were downloadable PDFs. It wasn't even a thing. You started podcasting in 2009. Like when you said in your, this post, when you had to download files and you had to use a tape player adapter in your car. But at the same time, those were the things that laid the foundation for your multi six figure creative business that you have today. So um, one of the things that I think was really interesting to talk about is that, that you were always okay with experimenting with things that weren't fully formed. And so what are the things that you're paying attention to now as somebody that is a, a, a leading voice on the forefront? And now you're like, okay, I'm, there's plenty of other people in the space. Now I want to be at what's next. So what are you focused on or what are you most excited about? You mentioned AI and writing and that kind of stuff when it comes to this next decade of, of publishing in the, uh, in the, the, with all the new technology we have. Mm. Well, <laughs> there are so many things, so we'll just cover a few. So mm -hmm. first of all, I think uh, from a creative aspect, I am very excited around the idea of co-creating with AI. And again, the music industry is often a couple of years ahead of publishing, and a lot of those musicians are releasing albums co-creating, co-created with AI. So in the writing space, um, there's a company called OpenAI, uh, whose natural language generation tool uh, called GPT-3 is, and I'm in the, the beta program, and it's actually now being licensed by Microsoft, which is kind of weird because I'm an Apple girl. <laughs> but um, it's it's one of these things where you essentially, if you think about it as a massive um, sort of, you put in a prompt and then it generates words off your prompt. So if I put in three sentences and then press enter, it's going to carry on those sentences. So it will kind of write in your voice. And a lot of the, a lot of the tools right now that are emerging are around advertising copy, for example, around blog posts, um, a lot of journalism now in the sports area, finance area is done by robot journalism, essentially. So writing with AI, gener natural language generation is something that is definitely going to transform the space for writers. Uh, and I'm not scared of this. This is the thing. I'm I'm embracing it, whereas most of my industry are backing away in horror going, ah, just take it away. Um, but I think... <laughs> 
I, I feel that, uh, like in the same way, as you say, I jumped onto the Kindle and there's a video of me on YouTube from 2010, I think it was, going, here's my Kindle, this is going to change the world. You know, <laughs> I was one of the first people in Australia where I lived at the time to get a Kindle and I was like, this is, and it did, it has. For writers, it's changed the world and for readers too, because you can read books from all over the place and different voices and, you know, you're an author, you have books. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those exciting things. Okay, so AI, natural language generation, I think, is a fundamental shift. If people are interested, I've got a list at thecreativepen.com forward slash AI writing. And there's a whole load of tools there and sites that you can use to play with various generation tools. Um, so that will that might be useful to people. So that, that's one thing. Uh, then, uh, of course, <laughs> we don't have to go into the legal ramifications of AI and copyright, but it is a, a huge minefield. So again, I feel like creatives have to get involved in these things. It's not just technology is too important to be left to the technologist, as, uh, as the saying goes. And I want to be a creative involved in technology. So yes, I feel like that is one exciting thing. The, the blockchain, I think, or blockchain technology, I think is also really important. It's almost a fundamental architecture change to where we are now. And a lot of people get, obviously, you know, you, you have a, a great audience, so hopefully they're not confused, but many in my niche get confused between Bitcoin and blockchain. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this is nothing to do really with, with Bitcoin. Um, yes, crypto is part of the whole thing, but blockchain technology, the architecture of how we can uh, track our intellectual property. So if I load one of my books on to uh, a blockchain, let's say uh, Ethereum, and then uh, people, you know, it, 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 it's transformed into something completely different. It can be resold. Um, I can receive money down the chain as people sell it on, which is incredible. We mentioned digital scarcity. This doesn't even exist without blockchain technology. So I'm very excited about that. We can do smart contracts. And again, this is magic because we can do things that we were never able to do before. Like, for example, maybe you want to give 10% to your favorite charity. That can happen with every single uh, transaction that happens on blockchain. It will just automatic micropayments. And micropayments for royalties could transform the financial future for creatives and everyone else, but I care about creatives. So it's like, you know, we could end up with, instead of getting chunks of big, bigger chunks of money from these major companies, we end up with lots and lots and lots and lots of millions, multi-millions of microtransactions. And I make microtransactions now, I sell direct from my own website, but what blockchain technology will enable us to do is to make this whole thing transparent. So I think, I really think that blockchain possibilities could be as transformational for creatives as something like Amazon, Kindle, and um, the way, the first ebook revolution, I guess, this could be the next thing. And it also empowers creative entrepreneurs to, you know, put your work out there in these different ways and, uh, you know, work directly with fans and readers and people who want to consume your work. I mean, even so much that you and I, for example, this podcast episode it's actually our joint intellectual property because it's my voice, it's your voice. We could then decide, all right, we're going to make this a limited edition on blockchain and we load it up. We have a smart contract. It splits a micropayment between us forever. 
<laughs> and I mean, that in itself, you just think, oh, okay, that suddenly opens up a ton of possibilities because collaboration right now is hampered by the need to monitor who's doing what with what uh, intellectual property. Whereas what this will mean is we just have much more freedom. So in my mind, my abundance mindset, and I know you have one as well, this abundant world, I just see more opportunity, more revenue, more creativity, more everything, if only we will embrace it. So you can tell I'm pretty excited about this. There are lots of other things I'm excited about, but they're just a couple. Yeah. And that, that was intentional for this particular episode. Cause I'm like, I could tell, you know, we could talk all day about book writing and that kind of stuff. And you have years of experience. I'm like, but this is what you're passionate about now. And this is the future that we're talking about, which is really exciting. So there are a few comments I wanted to make. One, I came across in my research too. You had, you had written somewhere, the mass market is basically over. The world is fragmenting faster than ever. And I think that these blockchain technology is enabling that is that we don't have to depend more and more on, like you said, a big book publisher that we can create and leverage blockchain technology to track the, the our intellectual property better than, you know, what, what was previously available. So that was one thing I just wanted to comment on. But the other thing I'm kind of curious to ask about is for you as somebody that's researching and planning on leveraging AI, where do you draw the line on what we as humans should focus on and what we should leverage machines to be doing as we create content together? Yeah, well, specifically on the AI writing side, yeah. how I think about it at the moment. And so when, and again, we should just be clear, the blockchain stuff, I'm talking about an architecture change over the next decade. And the same with the AI, you have to think a decade ahead. So we're talking about this in a very early stage, these things are not mainstream. But by talking about them now, hopefully we can position ourselves in a way that we can take advantage of that. So yeah, just to be clear, it's not all, this is how you do it right yeah. now. So for me, it's about, yes, as you say, double down on being human. You have to be your flawed self. Okay. I'm not an AI. I'm not a voice synth. I'm not a deep fake. You're talking to the real me, the real me. And you could potentially ask questions to catch out the deep fake if you wanted to. <laughs> uh, but it's, this is the thing I feel like right now, GPT-3, for example, is a bit like a car. So uh, it, uh, the car might be a really powerful sports car or whatever. It might be sitting there, uh, but it's not going to go anywhere unless you get in it and you point it in the direction you want to go and then you you help it go in that direction like it, it these tools are directionless they don't have any desires they don't they won't generate something unless you prompt them so what i'm finding so fascinating and you have to have an attitude of play which a lot of writers are very super serious and they can't play <laughs> but you have to play because it's a bit like and again, I don't know if millennials struggle with this, but you've seen older people like boomers who might not be able to search Google properly and they type in the wrong stuff or they just use like, I remember when my mum first got a, a mouse and she, she it got to the edge of the table and she's like, where do I go with the mouse now? And I'm like, mum, you have to pick it up and move it back. <laughs> I mean, I know it's just crazy. And the same with Google, you have to, you have to, and voice tech, for example, you know, we play with, um, I won't say any of the wake words, but we play with the various voice tech to try and ask questions in the right way. In the same way, GPT-3 and these AI writing things, you have to prompt them in the right way. So I've been playing with the different ways of prompting that bring out more than a pile of nonsense. And then it's not just, oh, copy, paste, publish. It's, editing and shaping. And so I don't believe 
that, well, maybe one day you'll just press a button and out will come a book. But that's not how we write. That's not how humans create. So I see it very much as a tool in the same way as like here, Zoom is a really powerful technology. But this conversation doesn't exist without you and me using the tool to create something. So that's how I want people to think about the AI tools. It's it's as tools. We're not moving into the robot apocalypse where they're going to keep us as pets or whatever. Um, we're moving into, in this decade anyway, who knows in the future, but in this decade, we're looking at how do we make ourselves uh, leverage? I mean, you, you wrote a book called Leverage, and that's how I see it, leverage. It's how do I, as an individual, so I have my own company, and it's just me, and I work with freelancers, and I make really good money. How do I leverage that even more? And in fact, that might be what gets me, for example, to seven figures. Uh, it might be what gets you to seven figures as an individual. And this is what I love very much uh, is this idea of being able to make really great revenue with just yourself and all the tools that we can access now. So I, that's how I want people to think about it is this is opportunity to use tools to leverage your human self in more ways, I guess. Yeah. So this is so, so interesting. And one of the things that I'm obsessed with is this concept of unique ability or superpower or, you know, whatever it is that you're uniquely good at that nobody else can, can use. And if you want to have a one plus one equals 11 or a multiplication effect, there's this, my, my friend, Benjamin Hardy, uh, wrote a book with, um, um, Dan Sullivan called who, not how, and oh, the, yeah, whole yeah, idea, yeah. the whole, mm. the whole idea about it is, is how can you understand what you are naturally good at and then leverage that in multiplication with somebody that is, is equally good at things that you're not good at. And so like you have this multiplication effect. And so I view this, this AI conversation is also like the next level of that is like, you have to uh, us, our responsibility as humans is to deeply understand what we are really good at, both as just being a human to, to begin with, and also what our unique abilities are as a human and then leveraging AI to help multiply what we're working on. Um, and so like, that's the kind of thinking I think we need to have is how can we leverage this together? But until you are understanding of what your unique abilities are and also what, what separates us, the, the, the delineation between us as humans and robots, <laughs> that's the important thing that we have to understand moving forward. Mm, although I, I'm going to come back on you on yeah, what did it. you say? How can you understand what you're uniquely good at? That is a question of a lifetime. And yeah, it is. What I don't want people to think is you have to figure that out before you do anything. Because I actually think that you only figure this out when you try things. So for example, I... I've tried so many things because I thought maybe that was the direction and then discovered how I felt about it and discovered that was not the right direction. I also think the word unique is very difficult because um, a lot of people write books, a lot of people self-publish, a lot of people podcast. That's not what's unique about me. It's not my skills. What's unique is me is my person. And what's unique about you is you, Brandon. It's your history. It's your it is your experience, but it's not your skills because anyone can upskill. And yes, the robots are going to be better at us at lots of skills, but they cannot be better at us at being who we are as people. And I know this is really hard um, 
because then you actually have to spend more time getting to know who you are inside. And uh, for me, for example, writing fiction is very uh, revealing. My fiction is very revealing about my true self. You know, I have my Tony Robbins style self-help Joanna Penn and you're interviewing Joanna Penn. But as JF Penn, as a whole load of stuff that I don't generally talk about, you know, like I really love graveyards. Um, you know, I, I love this kind of dark tourism stuff. I'm, I'm, I like pretty gruesome things. And a lot of people wouldn't believe that of me. And it took me a long time to own up to it, to say, hey, do you know what? I like graveyards. Anyone else? <laughs> and chances are in the audience of this podcast, there's about 30% of people really also like graveyards. <laughs> <laughs> That's but mo- yeah, but most of them will never admit it because it's not, it, you know, know, death culture is not considered to be that cool unless you're a goth. Um, So that's the thing. I think it's really about tapping in. Or another thing, I I didn't know I was an introvert until I was about 35. So before then, I thought there was something wrong with me. I th- I thought that I that I was just weird that I didn't like being around people all the time and I was basically told in my job that I was not I was not a team player I was not good enough at networking I was not good enough not good enough not good enough but actually that was my personality and just and I like being on my own you know and luckily now the world works really well for introverts <laughs> So that's a bonus. But um, yeah, so do you mind me coming back on you like that? Is that, is that okay? Oh, no, that is 100%. I appreciate that. And I, I want to continue the conversation this way. The one thing I will add on top of that is I always view my unique ability. I have, I have a, a document on my wall of what I believe my current version of what my unique ability is. And so that's an important delineation that I think that you pointed out is that I very clearly say this is, this is Brandon 2021 of March, Brandon is when we're, when we're recording this. And I'm very clear that this is going to evolve and it will not be the same. But I think that as we begin to identify, or at least we go down this process of, like you said, understanding ourselves better, you get a, a tighter and tighter and more refined as to like what this is and also how to expand on it. So yeah, I appreciate you coming back on that. And I think it's really important, like you said, to not let this needing to have it all figured out to move forward. And this is actually something I came across again in, in your content. You say, in, as as with my novels, I don't plant, plot everything in advance. I will find my way over time, but I'd like to start with the, oh, well, that was something else. You're talking about the ocean as a metaphor to, to guide us. But I think that's a really, really cool thing to understand is that you, you don't have to have it all figured out. You need to just have the best of your ability of what you believe is is the next direction. You just need to move. And momentum is so important for gaining more clarity. Um, mm. And you can't you can't find clarity in stagnation. Yes. And my tip for this is to tap into curiosity. And what I've discovered is that people who've been embedded in the corporate world or embedded in a job or whatever way of thinking by whatever society is doing to you, that you lose your curiosity and your real understanding of how it feels to be curious. You know, like a kid, a kid will be curious and interested and then they'll just ditch ditch it and wander off and do something else because it wasn't they were like oh yeah there's a flash of curiosity and they turn and look and then it's over or they discover that's actually what they really love and I feel like we're almost trained out of curiosity as we grow and so for me a lot of my what I do now around fiction, for example, and nonfiction, like this AI stuff. I started following this, you know, back in 2016 um, when AlphaGo beat Lisa Doll at the game of Go. And I was like, whoa, this is uh, this is a really big deal. Why are more people not talking about this? And so I started following it more as a sort of interest. 
And then I was like, do you know, I'm clearly very curious about this. I'm listening to podcasts. I'm, uh, I mean, you are, you mentioned Dan Sullivan. I listened to his podcast with Peter Diamandis. I've read, you know, I follow Peter Diamandis and, um, you know, the, this kind of more exponential futures type thing. And I'm like, I'm clearly really interested in this. So I'm just going to double down on this a bit more and move to the point where you start to feel like it's a chore. And this is this is really interesting. So when I so in my day previous day job, I was an SAP consultant. So SAP is a big software company. And as soon as I left my job, I would not be looking at blogs. I would not be reading anything. I was not interested outside those hours of my day job. Now, everything I do in my life is stuff I'm curious about. So I'm reading blogs on AI. I'm listening to podcasts on AI. I read fiction all the time. Every night I read fiction. I'm, you know, just doing things where I'm feeding that curiosity. And with my novels, I go down rabbit holes of research. And that's how I come up with a novel is is I'm like, oh, this is interesting and follow it down. So what I would say to people, uh, you talked about it, like what what was what were you interested in as a child? And that's because children understand and they're closer to what they're curious about and they're more honest. And hence, I mentioned the graveyard as well. Like I will always go and visit a graveyard or a crypt or a cemetery or, you know, these things. I'm curious about them. So that would be my challenge to people listening is really to think about understanding how it feels because it's a feeling. It's a, I want to know more about that. I want to know more about that. So, and it's very difficult, but if you can do that, that will guide you much more than just saying, I want to make seven figures, for example. If you say, well, I feel like it's, it is, I I feel this is what I'm interested in. I would trust that. Mm. So this is a really interesting topic too, that I want to dive into, because one of the things I, I, I realized through through just the way that you, I think, articulate yourself when we talk about this kind of stuff is that that self-reflection and journaling is really important to you. And I know you've, in the past, you've went on pilgrimages and you've done walking for ultra marathons and you spent a lot of time alone and just thinking and reflecting. So kind of curious to dive into this topic a little bit. Do you have any suggestions for people that are interested in doing more of what you're talking about, of being more self-aware and understanding what you're naturally curious about as somebody that is actively seeking these experiences of, of being alone and thinking how do you approach journaling and kind of getting more clarity and insights on who you are and what you're naturally curious about? Mm. Well, this is an oldie, but a goodie, but um, have you heard of the artist date by Julia Cameron? No, I have not. Oh, there we go. Uh, So there's a book called The Artist's Way uh, by an author called Julia Cameron, and it's probably 25 years old now. Uh, And what she suggests in that book is to have what she calls the artist's date. And you'll hear a lot of writers talk about this. And the artist's date is a date with yourself. So you have to be alone for a start and you go somewhere and you don't uh, do anything else but this date. So for example, when I started doing this practice back when I had a corporate day job, like seriously, I never thought I was creative. I thought I had no creativity at all. I never thought I could ever be a writer. I was dead, creatively dead. And so the artist way got me back into it. So my first artist date, uh, I was in Australia and I went to the art gallery and I took a notebook. So whether you want to call it a journal, which might be a big word or just a blank (laughs) notebook or bit of paper, whatever, I would suggest not your phone 
because the phone has too many other, obviously you're going to take your phone, put it on airplane mode. <laughs> That's my tip. You always want your phone, but you could put it on airplane mode. Um, so go, let's pick a gallery. So go to a gallery. Uh, you really do have to go somewhere else. So post pandemic maybe, um, but go there, wander around, like give yourself an hour, two hours, whatever, just look at stuff and be like, yeah, that's, I don't know what that means, or I hate that. Or, and if you see something that you're like, oh, that's quite interesting, go and stand there and have a look at it. Read the text. I was like, I'm, I'm, because I'm a word person, I'm like, oh, that's interesting reading the text. And <laughs> I'll often take notes when I'm doing this type of thing. And then you make sure that you can go sit somewhere on your own, cup, cup of coffee, glass of wine, uh, whatever, and write, just write some thoughts down or draw because we're not all writers, draw doodly things. They can be as ugly as you like. It doesn't matter. But just tap into how you're feeling. And this idea of the artist date is some is a it's a practice basically and you the more you do it the more you will be able to get into how you feel and what you're thinking I mean you might end up writing down a whole load of stuff about you know the death of your dog or how much you are struggling in your relationship it might not be anything to do <laughs> with the art gallery or whatever you do but for me like you mentioned about the walking I do a lot of long distance walking that's another meditative it's almost an artist date because I usually go on my own and really think about stuff I do a lot of dictation actually when I do walk because obviously it's harder to write but I'll dictate my thoughts and then write it up afterwards so you can do moving meditation moving artist date or whatever but the key is to be on your own and do not allow yourself to end up doing your email or your social media and Instagram doesn't matter, you know, like all these things. So that would be a tip for people. Um, it's like I said, it's an oldie, but a goodie. And a lot of us still use that kind of practice of the artist date, um, as a foundation, I think for our creative practice. I love that. Um, I was just going to ask really quickly because I was thinking about it. What do you use a specific app when you dictate like an idea or when you're journaling uh, or no? I use Things app on my phone, which is my to-do app. Okay. Which, uh, but you know, everything has a, you can use the little microphone button on anything. I do have a little handheld Sony. If I'm specifically dictating a book, I do have a handheld MP3 recorder, which is not my phone. But you can also, you can just dictate into notes or whatever the standard app is on your phone. Look, it really doesn't matter. Um, and I, I don't want people to get obsessed with apps. Yeah. I was just going to say as a, as a, as a hack that I find one of the favorite apps that I use is called otter.ai and it just, oh, it yeah. automatic, it automatically transcribes, uh, yeah, you know, but the, the stuff problem, that you're saying. So, oh, okay. The problem is that you will see, you see it, you oh, see and you the get text, conscious of it and it's wrong and it's spelled wrong. And then you, you're like, Oh, I didn't mean that. And then you're suddenly out of your a thoughts. Flow. Yeah. Sure. So this is really important. This separating the creative from the editor because as soon as you see your words, they will be wrong because it's never right. It's never the right sentence. If you, well, I don't know if you will transcribe this, but if you transcribe this, it will be full of repetitions and pointless things. And, but they're in there somewhere will be something useful, hopefully. But that's why transcription, you can't look at the words at the same time. Like literally it will kill your flow. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Okay. So I want to dive into my curiosity on one more thing here. Mm. And then I think people would be really mad at me if I didn't talk to you uh, about all the 10 years of experience in self-publishing and how to 
sell books a lot. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, is the, one of the things I was really curious about is as a fiction writer and also a nonfiction writer, do you have a process for like organizing your, like when I, cause I, I'm, I'm reading your, one of your fiction books right now. And it's like, I look at the descriptions that you have. Do you have a process for like recording just the, the observations that you have and you're like, oh, I'm going to use this later. I, I always just wondered about the creative process of like, how do you observe the world? And then how do you like leverage that observation until you're writing? Yeah. Well, I'm, when I'm, which book is it? Uh, it's the first of the Arcane series. Oh, okay. So Stone of Fire. Yeah. Which is, uh, yeah, which is based on my, tr- most of my travels. So most of that book has got my own travels in. So, um, <sighs> Most of what I write about are places I've been, but when I'm there at the time, I don't take written notes of things. What I do is take a lot of photos. So this is where the phone becomes really useful, is this you take a ton of photos. Um, so my Instagram channel, usually uh, at JF Penn Author, is full of pictures of my travels. So Lisbon, for example, we went to Lisbon the year before last, and Lisbon appeared in my book, Tree of Life, my last uh, arcane thriller. And uh, so I went to Lisbon, I was like, okay, so um, these are some of the things I found a mummy in a a convent, uh, an ancient mummy in a ruined convent. I was like, this has to go in the book somewhere. So I knew I would write about it. So I took loads of pictures. And then when I came to write that scene, I open up the photos and look at them all. And then I also research again. So I'm like, oh, actually, I don't know enough about that convent. So I'm going to go research that on whatever website. So it's kind of a combination of both. It's like I generally will have visited and taking pictures because that's the lifestyle I enjoy. And then I will read research it at the time but no I don't sit there and write detailed stuff while I'm actually traveling Mm. got it oh one tip Uh, uh, if people don't know the best writing app that I use and many of us use is Scrivener I don't know if you've heard of Scrivener but yeah Scrivener would be I've written over 30 books now on Scrivener it's awesome (laughs) <laughs> that is awesome. And I, I promised that I said that was the last question, but I, I, I'm going to try something. I'm going to try one more thing. Um, I, I feel comfortable doing this with you, but like, I, so I have never considered writing fiction. I enjoy reading fiction. I know this is something that you in the past, like you were only nonfiction and somebody do it. So convince me to write fiction. Like what, what, like how, how did you come to this realization where you're like, I'm going to start writing fiction now as a nonfiction uh, person? Well, okay. So I'm going to do what, to you what they did to me, which was, <laughs> okay. uh, I was, I was interviewing someone and I was like, oh, I could never write fiction. I just, I just don't have that kind of brain. You know, it's not what, you know, it just, and he said, I think you've got a block around writing fiction (laughs) maybe maybe you you have put up some kind of block that way and I'm like no I haven't (laughs) I will prove you wrong I can do anything I'm like and so how I got started was NaNoWriMo so NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month so um, and it's at NaNoWriMo.org which happens every November and the goal is to write 50,000 words in a month and 50,000 words is actually a novel. So if you get 50,000 words, please don't hit publish, but you will have something. So my that first year, 2009, in November 2009, I wrote 20,000 words, of which around 5,000 became the seed of Stone of Fire. And since then, yeah, I've written like 17 novels. So um, beware of NaNoWriMo, it can really get you started. But I think the main thing around the type of books that you want to write has to come from the type of books you like to read. And you clearly um, like a lot of um, self-help business, you know, entrepreneurship, which I also read a lot of. So um, that's one angle. 
but then the other one would be well do you read fiction do you um do you like certain types of movies for example yeah i, I mean i i like i like thrillers i i read um i'm reading the percy jackson series right now uh right. And, and and i'm and i'm in the middle of reading your book so yeah i, I definitely well, the one thing that i think it's a, it's a natural forcing function and correct me if i'm wrong but i the way that I would convince myself is that it is a natural forcing function for presence. Like, like you have to be more observant of the world of, uh, even more so, I believe when you're writing fiction, than nonfiction, uh, and, and maybe, maybe I'm going to correct myself in what, what I just said there. I think it, it, it will force you to pay attention to different things that you would otherwise not pay attention to if you were only a nonfiction writer. Yes. And, and to, think in an entirely different way about right. what would be a cool story and that I think that's the fun thing like you've got to think that it's about fun like Percy Jackson's a great example it's fun it's mythology it's got fighting in you know that kind of thing is awesome and I think that's the other angle so if you do it I would love you to be just to, like have fun with it and the other thing's very difficult for high achievers like yourself which is it will be crap. It will be really <laughs> crap. And that's okay because you can edit it and you can get better with time. And um, I wouldn't have it any other way now. I've learned so much about myself through, like I read some of my book. My book Desecration is very important to me because I learned a lot about myself in that book. And I, I, I got over self-censorship, which is a huge issue um, mm. for all of us. And well, I didn't get over it. I, I faced it. And uh, and if you read that book, it that's, that's one aspect of me on the page. So it's very powerful to write these things. And um, I hope you do that. I really do. It will, will challenge you for sure. I, I, it is in my future. I'll just say, I'll just say publicly, I'm going to do it eventually just because I, I think, you know, storytelling is such a powerful thing to have and to experience it in a different medium. I've studied lots of storytelling when it comes to just, you know, public speaking and that kind of stuff, but I think doing it in written format is just complete. It's a whole new beast. Uh, so mm -hmm. it would be interesting to challenge myself in that way. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to put it, stop. I, we, we can't talk about all this other stuff. We have 10, eight minutes or just a few minutes left. And I want to make sure we talk about some of the nonfiction stuff and, and all the publishing you've done. So I would love for you to tell uh, the story of the the first time you you had 2000 copies of your book arrived to your front door and uh why why that was kind of a crazy moment that you had in your head yes so i wrote uh i'd sort of miserable in my job wanted to change my life decided to write a non-fiction book because somehow that would help uh ended up writing this book i was living in australia and essentially i did look at publishing a traditional publisher and uh, they told me it would take maybe a year to get an agent maybe another year to get a publishing deal and i was like but that's two years i can't wait that long so i went ahead with self-publishing which at the time pre-kindle in sort of 2007 2008 in Australia was printing books. And so I was like, yes, I'll print. I, I can sell thousands of these. I'll print 2000 books, obviously paid for that. And uh, they arrived in my house. And there's this picture, which I'm sure you've seen now of me standing in front of the boxes and the look on my face. I'm so proud of myself. And I just don't have a clue about what's about <laughs> to happen. So probably the next day, I realized that there's 2000 books in our living room. And I don't, I don't have an audience. I don't have an, I didn't even know about email lists at that point. I, I don't, didn't have an audience. I don't have a distributor. How am I going to sell these books? And thus began, um, so one of my biggest failures, i.e. most of those books went in the landfill, <laughs> um, were, were then sort of the transformative aspect was, oh, okay. So what is the best way to sell books? And thus I discovered blogging, podcasting, social media, all of those things. And, um, and also discovered that I really loved writing. So that 
failure turned into the beginning of my career and I, I don't regret it for a moment because that picture is priceless now I use it whenever <laughs> I speak I'm like she did not know what was going on at all but you know I, I from there I learned about internet marketing and I started build, building my email list and started the podcast all of those things so that would be another lesson is you know your failures can lead to your greatest su successes yeah, love that. So I wanted to ask you specifically, as somebody that has interviewed 500 people plus on your podcast about writing, and you've experimented with a whole bunch of stuff on your own when it comes to marketing books, what things do people most talk about that you found to be big wastes of time when it comes to marketing a book? <laughs> uh, do you know, I, I love your angle of tips and tricks and hacks. You mentioned hacks before. What I would say is this comes back to your definition of success, which I know is important to you too, which is there are lots of very good ways to market your book. For example, Amazon advertising, Facebook advertising, these can shift books. But if you hate advertising, you are going to make your life miserable. And also some of the people earning the most money from book sales right now in the indie community spend a lot of time and money on advertising. And so personally, it's not what doesn't work. It's what mm. doesn't work for you. So for most people, podcasting is not the right approach. But for me, podcasting is the basis of my book marketing and it does very well for me. And it's another income stream. So there is no wrong or right way, although to be fair, um, paying someone 10 grand a month as a PR person is completely pointless. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but most, you know, you're doing a better thing now by, for example, podcasting. People then ask you to come on as opposed to you trying to pitch people all the time. So uh, I think that's really important. Um, but yeah, in general, I'd say the most important thing is to find what works for you over the long term. And also, you might not know. Again, I didn't know that podcasting, I would, the, the podcast I started in 2009, the Creative Pen podcast is still going uh, 11 years later. Who would have, I wouldn't have known that at the time. So you don't necessarily know what you're going to love. I thought I might do more video. I used to do a lot more video and now I barely do video, just not that interested. Um, so yeah, I think you have to find what works for you and then you can pay other people. So I do pay someone to do my Amazon ads and my Facebook ads because I just can't bear the thought uh, of doing that because it just doesn't work for me. I prefer content marketing. So yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> 100%. I just want to echo based on my personal experience. Like I ran the marketing for uh, online education company with over 250,000 students and the, the, the founder, Jonathan, he just, he, he ended up not really enjoying the, the Facebook ads and kind of stuff like that. And like me as the marketing guy, I was kind of like trying to force him to do, you know, these ads and he like hated it and he was complaining about it all the time. And I, I don't want to paint him in that way, but I think that's so true that, that, um, it just wasn't in alignment with what, what he wanted to do as a marketer. And that's the most, a uh, very important thing to consider. So thank you for correcting me on that question that it's really not about what's a waste of time. It's what's in best alignment with you. So for Jonathan's case, you know, you know, it's not doing Facebook ads, it, Facebook ads could have been a very effective Avenue. And it was, it was a seven figure revenue mm -hmm. thing for us in the, uh, in the past, but if it didn't bring him joy and happiness, then yeah, that's why we stopped it. And that's why it, well, it didn't make sense is because it didn't work for him specifically. So yeah. And I think, insight. um, 
Uh, I think the other thing that's happened with the pandemic is that we've been able to reflect on what really does bring us joy because life really yeah. is very short and it's you can feel that life is short. This whole thing has made everyone feel that life is shorter. So you have to do the things you love. So for example, I used to do more webinars and now I don't do webinars anymore because what I would I really struggled. It was always late at night here because of America. It was always for Americans. And I was like, do you know what? I just, uh, my sleep is more important than making 10 grand or whatever on a webinar, like really. So you have to tap in to what you love. And, you know, just as an overarching kind of statement, uh, as we come to a, a close, you have to figure out the lifestyle that you want to live write the books you want to write, create the things you want to create and tapping into those feelings, the good feelings of what you really enjoy um, at the same time as you can still have that ambition. Like I'm, you know, totally ambitious like you, um, but I won't give up the lifestyle I enjoy to make more money. Um, I will try and make more money doing things I enjoy. That's probably mm -hmm. the best way. Yeah, I love that. And I thank you for adding that additional perspective because I think it is true. You know, I've talked a lot about on this podcast and just conversations with myself, how important it is to focus on, you know, what you're uniquely good at. But like thinking about it from a marketing perspective too, like, you know, I, one thing that I want to do for the post, I'm, I'm actually in the middle of hiring someone right now is to turn the podcast transcripts into like a blog post and stuff like that. And like, I will never do that. Like I, 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 that would, that would, drain so much energy for me if I had to do keyword research and write the, write the stuff and go through like, so, but I think it's important. So I think there's, there's a combination too, of like, what is the best for you to do and what can you leverage another teammate to do that is within their unique ability to do it. Um, mm -hmm. so that's really important. The last thing I wanted to talk with you about as far as nonfiction book writing, and then we can wrap up here. Cause I know it's getting late by you. Uh, you had mentioned an article that I think is really that everybody should read. It's Kevin Kelly's 1000 true fans. Uh, I know Tim Ferriss has talked about it as like the one thing that you need to read as a, as a marketing resource and you too as yourself. But one of the things that you said is people want connection and fans love supporting the careers they know, like, and trust. And that's why podcasts are exploding. It's all about connection and what we need to focus on. So just kind of curious to get your insights on, on somebody that's podcasted for years and how you've developed your marketing strategy around Kevin Kelly's 1000 true fans concept. Mm, I got to say, I never had a marketing strategy. So I think you, again, just following what you enjoy and following, and in fact, similar to you, I know you have this conversation, connection, power of connection thing you talk about. I started podcasting because I had no friends, uh, no author friends, and I wanted to meet other creatives. So I started podcasting to meet people and it turned into so much more. So in terms of the Thousand True Fans, I did, had not, not heard of that at that point. I think Kevin written it, but I hadn't heard about it at that point. But mm. the idea is that, and we all know about the marketing funnel. The fact is lots, for example, this podcast, uh, let's say 10,000 people listen to this half of them might have turned off already. They're like, who's that random English girl? <laughs> <laughs> Some of them might carry on to the end. Some of them might go to my website. Some of them might go listen to my podcast. Years down the track, some of them might buy mom some of my books or become one of my patrons or something like or hire me to do some to speak at some amazing conference and so this is how we have to think you have to think about yeah I'm going to put myself out there into the world being my authentic self which is what we're doing today and the thousand true fans idea is 
that some of those people will filter down to care about you. And they will say, I, you know, I want to buy a book direct from Joanna because then she gets 90% royalties. Or I know the podcast is free, but I'm going to become a patron because I find it valuable. Or these types of things. So for me, all I have literally done for over a decade is try and share what I learn on the creative pen and what I think about in my fiction. And those people who resonate with me will stick around and some of them might become true fans and and other people will go away. And that's fine because we all do that. You know, we all find people we resonate with and then we uh, find others we don't. So that's really important to tap into as well. So It doesn't have to be so much a marketing strategy as understanding that who you are, like we came back to earlier, who you are is unique and you will attract people who resonate with you and your voice, which is why podcasting is so awesome. But your voice, you know, is more than just your actual voice. It's who you are, your attitude, your positivity, all of those things. And I think that's the most important thing. And the other thing, I know it's really hard when you're... um, still in your 30s. But when you're heading towards 50, it's like, okay, uh, I have to do what I like for the long term. So I'm coming up, as you said, on a decade as a full-time author entrepreneur and 15 years doing it. You know, I had five years before that. And it's like, the only way to be successful is to do it for the long term. And you can only do things for the long term if you are healthy, if you are happy, if you love what you do, because otherwise you're going to give it up and go do something else. So that would kind of be the overarching thing. If you think about it from a, yeah, from a marketing strategy, you're going to possibly end up hating your Facebook ads. Whereas you think about it as, okay, I'm just going to be authentic, share what I love, be useful, all of those things, you're going to attract that thousand true fans. And that's how you're going to make a living. Yeah, love that. I think at the end of the day, we're all just craving more connection, especially as mm. like the, during the pandemic pandemic times. But if you don't think about it as marketing or sales, just thinking about it as connecting with people and being your authentic self, I think is just really the best recipe for all of that. So thank you so much for sharing. I know we're up on time. So I just have one more question that we'll figure out how we can find out more about your stuff. So I started asking this for people. And you know, we talked a lot about earlier about you spending a lot of time journaling and reflecting and and getting to know yourself better. So for somebody that has spent all this time, what does happiness mean for you? Oh, uh, well, I have on, on my wall here, you know, I measure my life by what I create. And that is, I'm not really happy unless I'm creating something. So I would say creating is is kind of happiness obviously I'm happily married I have a lovely family and all those things but I think you need happy work as well and so yeah I measure my life by what I create and that also might be a feeling like between us you know there's a feeling now we've had a connection we've created that by this meeting. We might have created ideas in other people's brains while they've been listening. So I see creation as a wider concept, but I feel like every day I like to create something and that helps me feel like my life is is meaningful. Some days yeah. it's a challenge, but I don't think happy, happy is not like happy, happy all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's a deeper feeling. 
I love that. Yeah. And I think you and I have similar, similar definitions. Cause like for me, I've realized through journaling, it's like, it's quality time with loved ones and also growth and progress. And so that can be in the perspective of growing a business. It could be learning a new skill, but I have to be creating some form of momentum in something. Um, and <laughs> that's, that's really important to me. So, um, thank you so much for answering that last question is where can people find out more about the incredible stuff that you've got focused on and follow your journey? Sure. Well, since this is a podcast, you can come over to The Creative Pen Podcast and pen with a double N. And if you like books and travel, come over to the Books and Travel Podcast. So those two places. And yeah, if you want to write a book, um, my site, The Creative Pen with a double N, has a lot of uh, resources, a lot of free resources, lots of useful things. And JF Pen is my fiction name if you want to check out any of my books. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. And I just wanted to say for you listening right now, if you are brand new to the show, just wanted to say welcome. It is an honor to have you hanging out with me and Joanna today. And I hope you become a regular listener and subscriber. And I bring on incredible people like Joanna all the time. And as you can tell, we like to go really deep on stuff. This isn't surface level conversation. So I wanted to thank you if you're new. If you're returning, thank you for coming back. They're what makes this show possible. I really appreciate you. Thank you. And regardless, if you're new or returning, if you could go out and leave this a rating review and please go help uh, share Joanna. Anna's message because my life has absolutely been transformed when somebody shares a podcast with me. So if you have a friend that that is a writer that wants to hear about the future of creation and AI and all that kind of stuff, or just marketing a book, please share this episode with them right now because Joanna's got incredible content. And like she said, please go make sure to check out her podcast and all the other stuff that you have going on because I've, I've had a blast going through all of her content. She's got some phenomenal stuff. So thank you, Joanna, so much. This has been awesome. And I look forward to many more conversations in the future. Thanks.